Well, such a lovely ball over the top here, and the run in behind for England is by turn. What a chip! What a goal! The winner is Qatar. It is not safe for someone like me to watch the World Cup in Qatar. The legacy of this tournament is the change in society. More than 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup. Officials fined a million US dollars while lobbying them to the Qatar. I'm rapidly falling out of love with football. I just wonder what's the point anymore, you know. If I speak, I am in, in big trouble. Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Pro Revolution Soccer, a very special podcast series covering football and specifically the World Cup for Navarra Media. My name's Keir Milburn. I follow Leeds United. I am and always will be a Bielsa Easter. And I'm joined by my rather affable co-host, Tom Williams, a.k.a. Shirley Mush. Hi, Tom. Hi, Keir. Uh, I suppose I'm a BLC star too, really. My, my managerial idol would be Mauricio Pochettino. So, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a BLC star at heart too, because obviously Mauricio kind of derived from, uh, from Bielsa. Hey, look, this is what we're going to do. We're, we'll be recording five episodes in total. We're going to drop a new episode every Friday, and we're going to go right up until just before the World Cup final i'm afraid you'll have to you'll have to process the world cup final match yourselves but we'll hold your hands through the rest of the tournament um a bit later on we're going to be joined by a couple of rather stellar guests we'll be meeting renowned football analyst and all-round good guy alex stewart and navara media's very own ash Sarker, who is literally a spurs fan but for the moment, Tom, it's just me and you, very cosy setup. Uh, um, so, like, I, think, I suppose we should explain what we want to do on this podcast. Why are we recording a, a podcast about football and the World Cup on a left-wing media platform? Why are we recording a, a podcast about football on a left-wing media platform? Well, I think we, we both sort of agreed that um, there is something rather grubby about this World Cup. And we don't really feel particularly great about it but we also don't really feel like the work has been done or the necessary work has been done for us to be able to take any real action on that um so as part of an, a separate but but related project called acid football that, that you and i have been doing for over a year now um we felt that there was a need for a sort of consciousness raising aspect and we want to sort of raise awareness of, of what's been going on with the World Cup, how it's ended up being in Qatar, but also raise a bit of awareness amongst football fans and particularly football fans on the left of what's been happening in football more, more generally. Because this is, you know, this is just a really a particularly egregious example of the sort of everyday corruption and exploitation and inequality that our game, unfortunately, is absolutely riddled with. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean... One of the ways you could describe it is let's politicise football, but I think that's the wrong way around, really. Because like, it's more like football is absolutely riddled with, with politics and um, pushed around and dominated by economics. So we want to basically pull out the, the economics and the politics which are already latent in football. But I suppose what we also want to do is, is to assert that that, you know, the politics, that, that, that discussing the politics of football is not separate from the questions of why why we love the game, you know, why 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 we love football, you know, they're they're the same things, and so the the thing we want to do is to sort of bring the same level of seriousness and um, analysis to like the political and economic aspects of football, and what better place to start than the World Cup in Qatar? 
You know, we want to treat that sort of analysis the same sort of seriousness that football fans treat discussing footballing matters or more directly footballing matters, really. As you put it once, Tom, we've got to stop leaving our our politics at the turnstile. And I like that line. <laughs> well, I, th- I think I think the issue is that often we sort of like hear people sort of talk, the kind of against modern football brigade, the, the slightly revanchist, um, slightly reactionary kind of older football fan. And we, you know, we're both middle-aged men, so perhaps we fall into that bracket ourselves. But they talk about how our oh, football's really capitalist now, and I, you know, I don't, I don't think that's actually strictly accurate. I think it's more a case of, like, football, football is in capitalism, and capitalism is in football in the same way that nature is in capitalism, and capitalism is in, is in nature. To use a sort of Jason Moore kind of a, kind of an analogy. But you know, like you said about the, the, treating it with the, with the same seriousness that you treat a conversation, uh, you know, treating the politics of the game with the same seriousness that you, we, we treat other aspects of the game is important. But I think it's also important for media to start treating football with the same seriousness that it that it treats politics, actually, and and also just um, I think I think it's a case of people needing to sort of um, football fans needing to own their shit, frankly. Like you know, we we sort of need to recognise the bad stuff that our own clubs do, the bad stuff that the game itself does, or sort of like fractions of the game itself does. But it's important to say, I think that we want to actually take action. You know, this is a sort of a precursor. This is a sort of an organisational form that is hopefully going to lead to actually sort of taking some action, bringing football fans on the left together, so we can actually maybe somewhere down the line prevent another World Cup being held at the behest of a sort of really grim and ghastly regime. Because at the moment, we just, we, you know, there's there's no sort of, there's no capacity at the moment for football fans to be able to prevent that, as, you know, that, as is sort of self-evident, really, from the fact that the tournament is going to go ahead without any really meaningful, I don't think, protest. But we're kind of going to get into meaningful protests later, aren't we? Yeah, I mean, we, we have we have stopped the, the European Super League. So it's not all hopeless, <laughs> Although it may seem that way. No, I agree. I, I think like it's like almost like the degree zero of politics, like where all politics starts and like any form of political action, it starts by people like discussing their experiences, basically. Discussing their experiences and trying to work out how those experiences are sort of shaped and constrained by all these big, big structural forces around the world. Like football is being pushed around and shaped by these big, big, you know, political and economic structures you know, if we can start by uh, by our own experiences of football, our own love of football, and then reach out and try to work out how that experience is being structured by by bigger, bigger, bigger forces, you know, and the forces that are pushing that have, that, have, that have, let's let's get straight to cut straight to chase corrupted the World Cup, etc. They are very similar to the forces that that dominate in uh, and and structure the Premier League, for instance, as the, the probably the best example of any league being subject to these sorts of um, flows of money and so forth. I think it's probably it's probably useful to think about it in terms of like capitalism organising football basically, but but they're also being resistance to to that. And I think the World Cup ending up being in Qatar sort of is quite an exa- a good example of how capitalism organises football and also of football's capacity to resist, which is quite limited at the moment, but could be could be much greater. Yeah, we should get on to the elephant in the room then. We're going to be watching a World Cup in the next over the next five weeks uh, in November, not not in the, not in the summer, um, and it's going to be in Qatar. And like that is such an obviously ridiculous proposition, 
that it begs this question, should we be doing this podcast? Should we be uh, talking about the World Cup, watching the World Cup? Should we boycott the World Cup? Uh, it's a good question. And I think what, what we've both sort of concluded is is that while the moral argument would, would be that, I, you know, we, we can't have anything to do with this, the, the, the political argument is actually there isn't a sufficiently organised movement within the game to make that meaningful or, or effective. Um, so this is a sort of... Um, I suppose this project is a sort of a stepping stone to making that happen, but an acceptance that it can't happen at the moment in a, in a kind of in an effective way. Yeah, I mean, perhaps before we get to like to that, whether a boycott is effective, which I think is a really good, strong argument. And obviously we've got a little bit of motivated reasoning because we've got another four episodes to record. So we've already made our minds up. Um, but, um, you know, before that, it's like, why would you want to boycott the World Cup? I suppose we should go through a bit, a few of the, you know, the the reasons why, why there have been some calls for a boycott and, and you know, some people, some friends of ours are, are, have said they're not going to watch the World Cup. They just they just find it like a, a, a moral point too far to, to go along with this, right? Yeah, some very dear friends in, in uh, actually, yeah, uh, I know, uh, are not watching, yeah. I mean, so the straightforward thing is that, you know, FIFA is is basically completely corrupt. The international governing body of football is, is corrupt. Pretty much everyone, I think, who was involved in the World Cup being awarded to Qatar has basically been kicked out of football amid accusations of corruption. There are many, many sort of objections to the various illiberal stances of the Qatari government, the Qatari state, around things like gay rights and uh, rights for women. But also, there have been over 6,500 migrant workers killed in Qatar in pursuit of creating the infrastructure necessary to stage a sporting event on that scale. And when you think about it in those terms, I don't know, my stomach just does this this thing where it, 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 it that feels, that really does feel like a, a step too far. I mean, it's almost unimaginable. That is an almost unimaginable number of people. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, and, and you know, the, the rights of, of workers. So, so Qatar's like a really small actual population, a Qatari population. It's like 313,000, I think. But it's got like 2.3 million migrant workers um, who live in the country as well, which is very, that's an unusual setup, okay? And, and migrant workers have got very, very few rights, actually. They live in, they're, they're, they, they have very precarious lives, etc. Their, their, their immigration status is obviously tied to their jobs. It's, that makes it very, very difficult to, to tr- struggle to try and improve those conditions, etc. So those are the sorts of um, reasons why you might want to boycott the World Cup. Perhaps we should get um, our guests in, actually, to... to, to Throw their 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 views into the into the ring. Let's get Ash in first. Let's get Ash in. We've 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 hidden the sigs. We've tidied the front room because we we have the actual IRL Ash Sarkar on the podcast. Welcome, Ash. I I feel a bit like the Gabby Logan of this podcast. It's like <laughs> surrounded by men, and then I'm just here to be like, uh, no, women like sports too. <laughs> We're not just having children. Yeah, well, that is right. That is why you're on. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> We we asked we asked Alex if he could shave his head so we could be three bald bearded men, but no, he refused. <laughs> so um, I mean, the first I suppose the first question is Ash, are, are you are you going to watch the World Cup or are you going to are you going to sort of boycott it? 
Yeah, I mean, I probably will. And I don't think it's actually a morally defensible position. It's a bit like eating meat. Like I know I shouldn't do it, but my desire to feel a certain kind of joy by participating in a zeitgeist in this case um, is is probably going to be the thing that wins out. I mean, I think I think maybe the more productive question rather than should you boycott the World Cup in Qatar because I think morally the answer is a very clear yes is well what is a boycott how does it work and what is it meant to achieve and I think I feel that this conversation is coming a bit late we've known for a really long time that Qatar is going to be hosting this World Cup and it feels like the discussion of a boycott has only emerged in the last couple of weeks. Now, that is not enough time to build an effective international boycott for what is arguably the biggest sporting event on the planet. And I think that maybe this speaks to a a failure of politics rather than like a a failure of sport fandom or like a failure of like the politicisation of football. And that's because we think about boycotts as being an almost individualist consumer behavior. So to express my moral condemnation, I don't buy or participate in this product. But that's not actually how historically successful boycotts have worked. They've taken organizing, international cooperation, institutions, and quite a lot of time to build up. That's how the sporting boycott against apartheid South Africa functioned. It wasn't about boycotting a single event. It was about doing the same thing over and over and over and doing it across sports and arts and academia. So I think that if if we're genuine about talking about a, a boycott of, of Qatar, so what's it meant to achieve? Is it just some finger wagging? to go, oh, you're not very nice to LGBT people or like, give that Bangladeshi worker back his passport, you naughty boy. Or is it actually trying to reorient whatever state we happen to live to take a particular line to change its foreign policy, to change how it relates geoeconomically to the state? Because if so, and I think that's a totally legitimate thing to want to do when it comes to the state of Qatar, you are going to have to do things like connect a sporting boycott to the fact that Qatari purchases of London property have gone up 50% in the last year. The Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund own, you know, Canary Wharf and Harrods and God knows what else. Um, football isn't alone in terms of participating in Qatari sports washing. I mean, I am ashamed to say that I love Formula One and it's like the most Tory thing that I like. It's it's totally indefensible because, you know, football at least has this like rich grassroots history, whereas um, Formula One is just like the fail sons of billionaires, like crashing and dying, you know, every season. And obviously when you look at, at the uh, calendar for Grand Prix, you've got, you know, the classics of, you know, Monaco and Silverstone. But the big money is coming from Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and, you know, Baku. So you're going to have to, I think, have a much broader conversation and put in the legwork. I think that just going two weeks before a World Cup, like, oh, should we all be boycotting this thing? We've just noticed that Qatar is really bad. I think it at best it speaks to a naivety. And I think at worst it sort of speaks to we've forgotten what boycotts are and what they're meant to do. I mean, there have been previous attempts to boycott World Cups, like the 78 World Cup in Argentina, where there was a dictatorship, you know, and 
the really horrendous dictatorship, um, killing a load of people and throwing them out of helicopters and all horrendous things like this. And the World Cup final takes place just next to the to the to the naval centre where people are being tortured and killed. You know, and that was quite an organised attempt, I think. And even then, it failed. And I think there is something about like, if we think about what are we trying to boycott in terms of the World Cup. You know, the World Cup is the money for th- that flows into the World Cup and, you know, st- uh, started corrupting FIFA in the 70s. It's TV money. It's TV advertising money. And, and and obviously people will go to the pub to watch it. I know Paris is saying that they're not going to put the big screens up and people go to the big screens. But most people around the world will watch the World Cup final, you know, the, 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 the biggest audience for a simultaneous event, no doubt. Uh, they'll watch it in their houses. Do you know what I mean? And, like, there's a strange thing going on between... Like public action is something that takes place in public space, and we're actually asking people to do something. I not not watch something in their domestic space, which they probably think of as their private space. It just it seems like there's a big barrier there. If you're if the form of action is to stop watching something on TV, it already seems like an extra hurdle in some sort of way. The other thing is it's this it's this big sort of ecosystem of things, isn't it? It's not just the World Cup. It's it's the World Cup and and the footage of the World Cup that gets sold to a load of broadcasters. And then those broadcasters, they sell advertising space to you know, Barclay Card or Vodafone or whoever. In order to have a sort of an effective boycott, I think you would end up having to boycott this web of things. Um, and and there, there just isn't the sort of level of organisation necessary to make that happen at the moment. Um, Alex, what are your what are your views on this? I mean, obviously, it's 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 quite a difficult one for you because you you actually work directly in the game now, don't you? Pretty much. Yeah. So for professional reasons, I've already morally compromised myself beyond recall. I suppose um, it's very difficult when you when you love something that is deeply problematic and and has so much about it which is great and what attracted me in the first place ultimately watching people do skillful things in an interesting way. Uh, the World Cup being the most elevated form of that in some instances, but the whole football landscape, it is corrupt. It is entirely governed by capitalism. It's in, deeply imbricated in a system which is uh, unpleasant and exploitative. Qatar is an example of that, but Many of the same questions could very reasonably have been asked about Russia. It's quite interesting that they weren't asked to the same degree. And as Kira said, going right back to Argentina, where you know the, the Dutch team in the final were was basically um, that they were threatened effectively in the changing room and by having the, the military police surrounding the pitch and so on. You know, this this is not new, um, and I think you have to come at it from two different ways. You know, that football needs changing not just in terms that f- football's sin here is not that it gave a world cup to qatar football's sin is much deeper and more wide-ranging than that and giving a world cup to qatar is but an element of it so football needs to change qatar needs to change and and for exactly the reasons that ash has already highlighted uh, a boycott this late in the day is not going to do that um does that mean that we shouldn't talk about these issues and we shouldn't highlight them and we shouldn't use the platform afforded by the World Cup to criticise Qatar and football more generally? Absolutely, we should. But if we're going to do it properly, we need to have started years ago and we need an actual programme of action. And it needs to be about football generally as well as Qatar because one is symptomatic of the other. 
Yeah, I mean, that, that was a sort of the discussion that me and Tom had when we were discussing what, what to do and whether we should do this podcast, etc. was in this sort of situation, you probably want to go along with the grain of the World Cup in order to criticise it, basically. Use the publicity of the World Cup to sort of, yeah, to sort of try and start something in which people will will t- will start talking about politics and, and football in a sort of serious in a sort of serious manner, um, but now we have to do a really hard transition because we also want to talk about the footballing aspects of the World Cup. <laughs> maybe, maybe just really quickly on on you know using the World Cup to have political conversations. Um, before before we started recording, I was just thinking, okay, so what what are my favourite pieces of sports writing? ever, not just about football, but sports in general. And I always come back to CLR James Beyond a Boundary. And in his introduction, he he rephrases a, a Rudyard Kipling line and he says, you know, what do they know of cricket who only cricket know? And I think that's the same with football. And some of the most fun conversations that you have about football aren't solely about football. They're always touching on something else. So even if you're like having an argument with your friend about whether like XG is a load of bollocks and like meaningful measure of anything, you're having a conversation about gamification and stats and, and, and almost the sort of turning sport into an extension of statistics. That's a, that's a political conversation. And when it comes to the world cup, I mean, the first, first world cup, I really, really remember was, um, France, Brazil in the final Ronaldo, like real Ronaldo, had had a fit or something, was playing quite quite poorly. And the reason why I remember watching watching that match is because my mum always treated watching football as like it was the non-aligned movement on the pitch. So if it was like Cameroon, Senegal, Brazil, we were like, okay, because Bangladesh is never going to qualify. It's like you are our people, like you know. Obviously, the best being being Ghana, because my mom literally would behave as though like Nkrumah himself was on the pitch, and that that is a, a memory which is shaped by politics. And so I kind of think sometimes, you know, like earnest lefties, we start in the wrong place. We go, oh, how do we how do we politicize football? Like, how do we get people to have um, political conversations? People are already having them. We're just not engaging with them in the way that people are already having those conversations. You know, we're kind of coming along with like a very rigid idea of what a political conversation is and going, oh, why didn't you meet us here? The reason why people don't is because it's, it's jarring or boring and, and doesn't doesn't feel authentic to, to their own lives. Yeah, totally. I mean, we what we found, like what Kira and I found when we first started doing this sort of, the, the consciousness raising stuff was that it, it, it really was just a bunch of people sitting around talking about their dads at first. Like this, this, this sort of intrinsic, apparently intrinsic connection that that, that football has to dance. Ah, oh, no, man, my dad left at a really young age, so I can't speak to that one. <laughs> well, well, same. But 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 then I had a stepdad, and and that was that. Was a... <laughs> my my dad loves Formula One, so <laughs> right. Well, yeah, there you go. I mean, I mean, we've, we've, there's, there's going to be there's going to be something on Navarra about football and dads that I've I've written is going to come out in the, in the next couple of weeks. I think. I suppose the other thing is it comes back to agency, doesn't it? You know, can, do, do we actually have any real agency? Well, because of the lack of organisation, no, really. And and this kind of speaks to this amazing line that somebody came out with at one of the, the football things that Kira and I did at the World Transform Festival, not this one just gone, but the year before, where this guy said, I, I, you know, if you're listening, mate, you know, fair play, 
this, this guy said, well, the, the thing about the institutions of the working classes, when we created them, we forgot to democratize them. And that, you know, that, that, that can be applied to something like the Labour Party or various kind of supposed workers parties across the continent and across the globe, but it can also be applied to football and football clubs specifically, you know, as a fan, you have very little agency um, because these organizations are not, are not democratic. And that really kind of spoke to me when that guy said that. Yeah, I think we are going to talk, are we going to sort of cover the, the examples of where people have tried to democratize it or at least have fan ownership, et cetera, in, in, in another episode. But um, it is beholden on me to move the conversation on to football tactics, but I think we can do it in a way uh, which which does sort of follow what, what, what Ash was suggesting. So I wanted to ask you, Alex, uh, about, you know, the sort of tactics we can expect at the World Cup, but also whether conditions are going to affect those tactics, like the heat primarily. Yeah, I think um, I think heat is going to be less of an issue here. I think what, what the main issue will be uh, is that the tournament is taking place in the middle of an already super congested uh, football calendar. One of the reasons that that calendar is so congested is because the more competitions you have, the more you can put on television and the more broadcasting money you can extract. So there is a, a conversation to be had there about are we just running footballers into the ground so we can make a spectacle of them uh, and squeeze every last drop of, of financing from that. And of course, footballers are, are probably the only people in this conversation who do have agency. And I think there's a really interesting conversation to be had about how much we expect of our professional athletes and the way they talk about the events that they are expected to participate in and whether we whether we effectively in this instance, for example, in the World Cup, place an onus on, on young men uh, to talk about things simply because they have a platform, but may, you know, is it their job to do that? Should we, should we criticize them if they don't? I don't know. That's, that's a whole other thing. Tactically speaking, though, I can talk about what I do understand a little bit. Um, international football is, generally speaking, a little bit slower a little bit more conservative with a small C um, because teams don't have a lot of time to get together and practice. And this is particularly the case in this World Cup. I think Gareth Southgate was saying uh, yesterday that ordinarily there'd be like a month where they could play some friendlies and they could work on a training pitch. And it's going to be about four days in this World Cup. Uh, avoiding injuries will obviously be crucial in that. So you're going to see a lot of teams sitting back, playing quite cagey, playing quite counter-attacking football, uh, teams playing direct football, looking to go long to, to big players who can win aerial battles and so on. We are not going to see the feast of football that the Premier League puts on. Um, this, is, this is going to be quite a lot of teams doing a Burnley. I, I, I wouldn't expect things to be free-flowing and exciting. Maybe that's a reason to boycott it. <laughs> <laughs> During the, during the Euros that ended up taking place uh, in the summer of 2021, um, it seemed like possibly as a result of players being frankly knackered and and also because of the, you know, the less organised playing models um, that were necessitated by the lack of time to prepare collectively. It felt like certain players, I'm thinking specifically actually of Paul Pogba, had more time on the ball and, and sort of were able to do the things that, that, you know, the footballing public have always, has always sort of wanted Paul Pogba to do. 
you know, he was able to to play these different splitting passes that he's that he, you know, he's, he's kind of perfectly capable of. Um, but but often didn't get the chance to do it in the Premier League because of the the Premier League's mm, obsession really these days with with pressing high pressing style what used to be called closing down I suppose um, Alex as a sort of an expert on all this stuff I should say you know Alex does kind of see football the way like Neo sees the Matrix he's like he he has this kind of like magic eye thing going on and it's, it's 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 really exciting to talk to him about it do you think that there will be specific players can you name any specific players for us to look out for who might actually benefit from the slightly different style that we're likely to see yeah so i i think one of the players i've been looking at recently is Koulibaly, the the senegalese center back um this is another really interesting point so we come into the world cup with with stereotypes in mind right so african teams are they're chaotic and they're about pace and power and individual moments of virtuosity um and actually senegal are not like that at all senegal are super organized and methodical very careful they build up from the back using their, their central defenders. And I think someone like Koulibaly is going to have so much time and so much space that he doesn't have in club football and will have like acres to, to gallop forwards into and then play these incredible passes out, out into the, the wide areas for overlapping fullbacks on the left-hand side. It'll be someone like Jacobs probably. Um, and so deep playmaking whether it's a Koulibaly or whether it's, I don't know, someone like Paredes for Argentina, um, they are going to have the option to unlock defences, Rodri for Spain. Um, that, I think, is why Calvin Phillips is in the England squad, even though he's only just coming back from, from shoulder surgeries. He's really England's most effective deep playmaker in that mould. Some of the centre-backs can bring the ball forwards a little bit and spray passes around John Stones probably. Um but I think that's where a lot of the creativity will come from, um, will be those those players sitting off in the pocket a little bit, protected by the fact that they're not suffering from quite the same degree of intensity in, in pressing. Teams will be looking to create blocks, nice and compact, vertically and horizontally, play around us, not through us. Um, and, and teams that have the ability to go wide over the top from that kind of base will be teams that do well. Um, so we'll see a lot of teams using wing backs for that reason as well, um, because that's where the width and the acceleration into those areas will come from. The Netherlands, for example, will do it consistently with Virgil van Dijk hitting the wide areas. Uh, can we talk briefly about the Iranian Zlatan Ibrahimovic? <laughs> Zada Azmoun, yeah. Um, he's he's really good, really good player. I, I think that um, it can be quite easy to uh, sleep on for want of a better term, players who are not playing in Europe's top five leagues and are potentially from nations that do not have a particularly strong track record of converting to Premier League success because there's a, an intrinsic domestic bias in the way we view footballers. Um, it's really bizarre. We just expect Brazilians to be good because they're Brazilian. Um, but someone like Iran, like, why oh, are they producing a good footballer? Asmoon is about six foot two, very, very good aerially, but has that kind of deftness of touch, the ability to play little through passes, link play and stuff that is slightly reminiscent of Ibrahimovic. He's not as good and he's definitely not as egotistical, um, <laughs> but he's definitely one to watch out for. England are going to have a difficult time in that group and it's not going to be from the USA. It, it will be from Wales and it will be from Iran, in my opinion. 
So yeah, caveat with that. Uh, more on Wales uh, further down the line because both Kira and I are sort of pretend Welsh people. I am actually, I was born in Wales, I not pretend to Welsh people. Although I, I have been to see England play in the World Cup before. Chucking, lobbing chairs around at Charleroi, Kira. Well. Yeah. <laughs> it, was at, it was at Lons in, in, the, um, in France. Do you want to know the full horrific corruption involved in me going to Lons? <laughs> My partner's in a band called Chumbawamba. And they allowed their hit single Tub Thumping to be used on FIFA 98, for which I got a PlayStation and free World Cup tickets. This corruption goes everywhere, people. We have to <laughs> look at ourselves before we cast judgment. I thought that you were going to say that you were the guy with the flare up his ass at the Euros, but no. So we've talked a bit about breakout stars. We've talked a little bit about... Uh, playing style and what we might sort of expect from it. We haven't had any predictions. I don't. I don't make predictions because they're always, always, always wrong. So I just, I just don't make them. I just, I just walk backwards into the future. You know, like the angel of history, only looking at the devastation of my own past and not, not thinking about what's going to happen next. I mean, I, I just to add to the what I'm personally excited for. I think there's two things other than the kind of um usual um you know bad boyfriend relationship that I have with England one is I'm really excited to see um another Senegalese player um Matar Sar who was bought by Tottenham and then loaned back out to Mets I think and I think he's just a baby he's like 19 or something and he's someone who I'm, I'm really excited to see and I think that within a context where you're going to see a lot of like sitting back and a lot of like defensive um, play. I'm really excited about Brazil's attacking options. They just seem to have so many as well, you know, like um, as well as, you know, uh, Neymar who, who, you know, has to pay tax now and I'm sure he's really <laughs> bummed out about it. Um, Vinicius Jr. Obviously um, Kuna, I think his name is. Um, they just have so many attacking options. And I think that, you know, yeah, it's a bit of a stereotype about um, the, the beauty of of the Brazilian national style of play, but it is always exciting to see. My only prediction is that at some point an English commentator is going to refer to Germany as the Germans. <laughs> like it will be, you know, talking about potential winners. Well, there's Brazil, there's Argentina, France. The Germans. <laughs> I, that's that's my prediction. That that is going to happen several times during the course of the that's, tournament. That's how I learned what the Falklands War was when I was a kid. Was I think it was like the first <laughs> time I saw like England play Argentina, and I remember being to my mom like, "Why? Why is everyone so mad at Argentina? Like, you know, the Evita Peron people. Like, what are they doing?" My mom was like, "Okay, there was this thing called the Falklands War." That was a wild time. I will pick up from that and say my my prediction in so far as there's any point in making one is Argentina. Um, I think they're very, very strong. I think they have a system that gets the best out of Messi without relying on him to do everything. And yeah, I do like Brazil a lot. Um, I also like they have a they have a striker called Pedro who plays for Fluminense, who's like a real throwback in the six yard box center forward. So he won't he won't probably play that much, but if he does, then he gives them something very different to what you expect from most of their forwards to be like. Uh, but there's a bit of a flakiness to Brazil, I think, down particularly at fullback. Um, Argentina just seem to have it. England, I think, are incidentally like a proper boom or bust team. 
I think they will either do surprisingly well and be semi-finalists or they will even struggle to get out of the group stage. I think they're one of the hardest teams to get any kind of handle on, which is very strange. I've got a question. Is there a World Cup song this year? Like, obviously, had like Shakira, Waka Waka. That was brilliant. Classic. But like, is there a World Cup song? That's a really good point, actually. I haven't seen... I haven't seen anything like that. Maybe they couldn't find anyone to do it. I don't know. I mean, I I, I wonder like if the era of like um like gimmick football songs might be like drawing to a close. Maybe artists think that it's not worth their integrity. But I think it's a sign, um, a sign that like you know capitalism is sucked the joy from football. You know, you give give the World Cup to a country which doesn't have a particular footballing history, just wants to sports squash its human rights abuses. You're having to play in the winter, thus fucking up all the domestic leagues. And you don't even get a World Cup song. You don't even get one. There's no top of the pops anymore to have them all looking really awkward and sort of <laughs> dancing around like they need to go, really need to go to the toilet. I love you like this. And there's no top of the pops anymore. And Starburst used to be called Opal Fruits. Did you know this? <laughs> <laughs> Policemen are getting younger. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're a Spurs fan, Ash. You, you must have seen the foot. You must have oh, seen yeah. Chris Waddle and Glenn Hoddle. Um, making perhaps of themselves, but all that diamond lights is a banger. I mean, I, I, my, my favorite, um, like genre of like shit gimmick song is when you get the whole sports team to rap. And there was one, which is, I think was like by the Chicago bears or something, which is like so awful and so great. Just that era of like 1980s, like stepping awkwardly from side to side, like one beat rapping and just like the entire Chicago bears team doing it. The German, the Germans, um, <laughs> the German football team made a record with the village people um, ahead of the 1994 World Cup. It's the, the video is quite something. It's Jürgen Klinsmann, um, sort of dancing around with the village, with you know construction worker and um, <laughs> what have you. It's yeah, it's it's pretty special. It's not diamond lights, but it's not far off. So we're going to be back on the with an episode dropping on Friday the 25th. We're actually recording just after England play Wales, so we're going to discuss that, and hopefully that will lead into some discussions around you know, the role that sort of patriotism plays. You know, is there a different role for patriotism around Wales than it is around England, etc.? Before we go, here's a reminder. I mean, if you enjoyed the show, please support uh, Navarra Media. You can support Navarra Media for as little as one pound a month. To do so, go to navarra.media/support. Thanks very much, Ash. Thanks very much, Alex. See you next time, Tom. Uh, over and out. Oh.